I'm looking forward to going through this message series with you. His story can change your story. We are looking at the story of the Bible and seeing how it is God's story. It tells of God's ultimate purposes in the world, and God invites us to be a part of that story, gives our lives great purpose. And in this series, we're starting with God's story. And I wanted to spend two Sundays, last Sunday today, introducing that to you. Next week, we start talking about our role in this story. Today, we are looking at Genesis chapter 2. Um, so if you have your Bible, open it up to the very beginning. Um, if you don't have a Bible, please see me after the worship service. I would love to give you a Bible. We're going to start with verse 1 of Genesis chapter 2. It says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. Last week we talked about the six days of creation in Genesis chapter 1. That immediately precedes this. Verse 2, by the seventh day, God rested. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all of the work of creating that he had done. And I think one of the uh, very interesting questions is, what does it mean that God rested in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2? Are two of those books of the Bible that can be particularly tricky to to understand um, as an ancient Hebrew person would have understood Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2? And one of the reasons is tricky is we live in a much different culture and in a much different time. And, and so we see these words, God rested. We can ask, well, what does it mean that God rested? Well, the ancient Hebrew people would have known very well what it means that God rested. So what does it mean that God rested from his work? Does it mean the same thing uh, as when I rest from my work? Because when I'm resting from work, it usually means I'm sitting on the couch and watching a TV show. And so I'm hoping that's not what it means that God rested. Um, So I want to look at a psalm, Psalm 132. It's not one of the most widely read psalms. If you have your own Bible, you could flip it over. One of our Bibles, flip it open to Psalm 132. And I want to point out just a few verses and, um, and talk about God resting. In the Bible, God, God's rest is linked with God's resting place. And Psalm 132 helps talk about, or helps us to understand God's resting place. So Psalm 132, verse 7 says this, Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness, and may your faithful people sing for joy. So what does it say about God's resting place? A couple of things. One, it describes, um, well, let me, let me, let me, uh, find where I am in my notes. Um, this says two things about God's resting place. Um, that 
uh, he is going to come to his resting place with the ark of his might, and his resting place is linked with his dwelling place. Now, the ark of his might is the ark of God's covenant, which was this, this box that, um, that represented the presence of God and also uh, had enormous and intimidating power. Wherever the ark of the covenant was, um, you just had to watch yourself because if you, if you accidentally touched the ark of the covenant, well, bad things would happen to you in Scripture. Um, if you were a part of a culture that didn't worship God and the Ark of the Covenant was in your midst, some bad things would happen to your people. So the Ark of God's Covenant um, had enormous and intimidating power in Scripture. So I want you to notice two things about God's resting place. God's resting place is the location where God displays his power. God's resting place is his dwelling place. And this is important when I say that his resting place is his dwelling place because that word for dwelling place is um, it's a very particular word in Scripture, and it means God's tabernacle. You might remember the tabernacle that God had the Israelites' people build as they were wandering through the wilderness. It was a tent which represented God's, uh, God's presence. And wherever they went, they would, they would take this tent with them, and whenever they stopped for a little while, they'd put up the tent and they'd worship God in the tabernacle. Now, a few verses later in Psalm 132, we see the same thing. So look at verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I desired it. So we see the same thing. God's resting place, that is his dwelling place. It's his tabernacle. God's resting place is where he will reign in power and in might. That's where God sits enthroned. So God's resting place is not where he sits to kick back and get his feet up and and just kind of chill out a little bit. God's resting place is where God chooses to dwell. It's his tabernacle, and it's the place where he rules as the Almighty God. That's his resting place. So when God rests, it doesn't mean that he ceases from his work. Actually means he's about to get on with the business of his work. What do I mean? Last day, we last week we looked at the uh, the six days of creation in Genesis chapter one. Um, and, and why does Genesis one spell out those six days? Well, we said that God was giving purpose to his creation in each one of those days. Um, we said that the, the, the days really describe the why of creation, not the how of creation. Why did God create these things um, was really the focus of Genesis chapter 1 and not necessarily how did God create these things. And these six days are all building up to something really amazing. And that's the seventh day the day of completion, the day when all the preparations of the six previous days had been finalized, and God is ready to do the next thing. So all the preparations are done. The world is ready to see what is going to happen next. Now God can rest from all of his preparations of getting things ready 
And now he can sit on his throne in his tabernacle and rule with power. That's going what's going on with Genesis chapter 1 leading into Genesis chapter 2. So it's all very important in understanding what happens in the second chapter of the Bible. We're going to start looking at verse 8, if you have Genesis chapter 2 open. And I'm going to put a few scriptures on the screen. I'm going to read through it, and I'm going to put a few, um, highlight a few scriptures, because we're going to see what's going on here. So verse 8, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And there was a river. A river watering the garden flowed through Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, and aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, and it winds throughout the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God then took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and take care of it. Talk about the Garden of Eden. And here's how many... Christians and non-Christians alike think about the garden. Um, They often think of the garden spiritually. They spiritualize the garden, meaning they don't think of it as a real historical location, a real historical event, this Garden of Eden. Rather, they think it's um, symbolic of, of something else that was happening, symbolic of the perfection that was lost when when human beings sinned. They spiritualize. People will spiritualize the garden. That didn't really exist. It just talks about what we lost when we sinned, this beautiful perfection. Or people will consider the garden as a secondary detail. Yeah, it might have been a historical location, uh, but it's not too important. What's much more important is what happened in the Garden of Eden, and that is the place where human beings first sinned, and things started breaking down um, after that. But the Garden of Eden is neither a spiritual thing or a secondary detail. It's neither of those things. What is it? The Garden of Eden actually is a sign. It's a real, real place, real location historically that is a sign of the ultimate goal of God's story. Now, to get to that ultimate goal, I want to look at two, uh, two scriptures. Um, so it's going to maybe feel like a Bible study here as we compare these two extra scriptures with Genesis chapter 2. So I'm going to put some notes on the board, um, and we're going to just kind of compare these two other scriptures with Genesis chapter 2. So many scholars point out there's a big parallel. We're going to see this, and you'll say, oh, yeah, I get it. People in ancient times would have caught these parallels very easily. So the first scripture is Romans, not Romans, is Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter in the whole Bible. And Revelation 22 is of, uh, it's a vision. It tells of this vision of a great city on earth, 
that God will create. So this is uh, Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel... So let's get back to that screen where we have... Yeah, so I have the Genesis uh, 2 story right above it, and then we're going to compare that with Revelation 22. Uh, Verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. So let's put that first uh, verse of Revelation 22 up there if we can. Let's see. And then I go one more. There we go. So this is from Revelation 20, 22. The river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. So what do you see in common between the Genesis Scripture and the Revelation Scripture? Well, there's a river. There's this river in both. And the river is bringing life. There's the tree of life. We saw in Genesis chapter 2, the tree of life in Revelation chapter 22. There's fruit to eat in both of these, both places. Genesis 2, Revelation 22, there's all this abundant fruit to eat. So what is the image here in Revelation 22? It's a garden. In fact, it's a garden that bears great resemblance to the Garden of Eden. And I'll tell you another thing that these two scriptures have in common. That's the presence of God. The throne of God was in this garden. Why is the throne of God in the garden? You have to look back one chapter to see what what God is doing by putting his throne in this garden of Revelation 22. And I think it's one of the most important verses to understand in order to really know what the Bible is saying, that God is doing. So let's look one chapter back, Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, and it says this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. The throne is in the garden because God wants to dwell with his people. That's why God's there. He wants to dwell with his people. Anyone want to guess what that word dwell means in Revelation 21 verse 3? means God's tabernacle. The same word meaning the tabernacle of God. Now, I want to look at the other scripture, and that's Ezekiel chapter 47. So we're going to compare two scriptures with Genesis 2. Now, Ezekiel was a prophet, and God showed Ezekiel an image of what God was going to do, ultimately. He's going to um, restore his people. And Ezekiel chapter 47 is this image of this temple that God 
is going to, to build, to restore his people. So we notice this parallel between Genesis 2 and Revelation 22. A uh, few of the things that we saw, there's a river of life, there's a tree of life, there's fruit in both of these gardens, uh, leaves that heal we saw in Revelation chapter 22. So here's Ezekiel 47, starting with verse 1. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water, it turns out to be a river, I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. The temple faced the east. So there's water flowing, and it's this river. And Ezekiel explains something really important about this this river. He says it flows into the Dead Sea. Now, why do you think the Dead Sea gets the name the Dead Sea? There's nothing living, living in the Dead Sea. The water's so salty, nothing can live in it. So it's called the Dead Sea. So verse 8 of Ezekiel 47 says this, When it, this water, this river, empties into the Dead Sea, The salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live so this river is not just a regular river. It's it's a river of life. It's, It's creating life. Now look at verse 12. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, there, neither will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them and their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. So, there's a river of life. There's the trees of life. There's God's presence there. God's in his temple. He's in his tabernacle. There's a garden. See, the people of God in ancient times knew that the Garden of Eden was more than just a beautiful garden. What was it? It was a temple. It was a temple that God was building. So Ezekiel finishes this vision by describing this temple. He calls it a city now. And he writes, uh, very last verse in Ezekiel, says, the name of the city, referring to this temple, from that time on will be this, the Lord is there. The most important thing Ezekiel wants to tell us about this temple is that the Lord is there. It's a place of the special dwelling of God. It's God's dwelling place. So what's the big deal? Well, Ezekiel and Revelation they describe this glorious temple that God is building in the world. It's a temple of God's presence. It's a temple of God's provision. There's life. There's fruit in abundance. Leaves for the healing of the nations. And it reveals the purpose of the Garden of Eden. See, last week we talked about God giving function to his creation. People were much more interested in about the why of creation, not the how of creation. Why did God create instead of how did God create? Uh, remember a few years ago, uh, my middle daughter Kate received a birthday present from my, my uh, 
my dad and my stepmom, and she got it in the mail, and it was a jewelry box. And my four-year-old at the time, Elizabeth, she sees Kate take this jewelry box out of this little package. And the rest of us, we, we knew what that was. It was a jewelry box. We knew exactly what it is. Elizabeth had no idea what it was. But she didn't ask, what is it? She didn't ask, how did that come to be? What, what did Elizabeth care about? Here's what she actually said. What does it do? What's its purpose? What's its function? This is what the ancient people were interested in when they read these creation stories, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Not how did all this stuff come to be? Why did this stuff come to be? What's its purpose? Well, here's the purpose of the Garden of Eden. We see this when we look at Revelation 22 and Ezekiel 47. God's purpose of the Garden of Eden is to be a temple where God is present, to be a place where God lives. See, God rested from the work of his creation because he was, all the preparations were made. The temple was ready for him to, to move in and to get on his throne and start his reign, start ruling over this world and the people of the world. He was ready to take up his throne. It was the seventh day, the day of completion. Everything was complete, ready for God to get about his real work of reigning over his people. So I want to go through several uh, just application points here. And the first is this. God's story is to fill the physical. And I think we, uh, we've been conditioned to think oppositely of that. We've been conditioned to think that the spiritual is of greater importance than the physical. That's more important. That's better than the physical. Um, but one of the very first heresies that the Apostle Paul warned about in his letter was that very thought. That... Um, that the goal of life is to get to the spiritual realm. That's the heresy. That heresy is called Gnosticism. And it said that the goal of life was to uncover the secret knowledge. And if you could uncover the secret knowledge, you'd be taken up to this, this spiritual place, the spiritual realm. But the Garden of Eden says, no, 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 that's not God's goal. God's intent is not to take us all to the spiritual realm, God's goal is to come and dwell in the physical world, to fill the physical. You know, if the beginning of the Bible story begins with God filling the physical world, and the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, ends with God filling the physical world with his garden in both, both chapters, that must be a pretty important part of the Bible story, right? That God plans to fill the physical. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let me ask you, how much does the waters cover the sea? How much? How much? I would say about 100% of the sea is covered by the waters. God 
is planning to fill, that's his goal, is to fill this physical world, fully fill, so that his knowledge, the knowledge of his presence, is throughout this world. So God's purpose for the earth is to be a temple where God is, is present. And I was thinking about that truth. I think it's very true. That's God's goal for this planet, to be a temple. Is that a practical thought? Or is it just kind of churchy language? Is that a churchy thought? I think it's really practical. I'll give you two practical things that we can carry with us from that. And, and the first is this. God is not distant. If you've ever thought, boy, it is hard to know the presence of God. Or if you've ever thought, gosh, God, I, I don't see you anywhere. Or if you thought, God, I, I, don't, I don't feel close to you, it's not because God is hiding. It's not because God likes to hang out in the spiritual realm and just kind of let us do our own thing down here in the physical earth. God is not distant. His intent is to be right with you. Get up in the morning, tomorrow morning, and think, God, you are, you are with me even as I rise. You are with me throughout the day. You are not hiding from me. God is not distant. And the second thing that we can know because the earth is God's temple is this. God is in control, and so you don't have to be. Remember, God's temple that we, that we see in Genesis 2, Ezekiel 47, Revelation 22. God's temple is not presented as a place where God is to be worshipped. I mean, is it a place where God is to be worshipped? Yes, but it's, it's much more than that. God's temple is a place where God puts his throne to reign. It is where he displays his might. He fully rules if we could just peel back the blinder that keeps us from, from seeing that and knowing that, uh, life would be a lot easier and better. And just the other day, I was at San Jacinto College. My daughter, Kate, the same one who got that jewelry box a few years ago, and now she's 16, about to take a, a class there at San Jacinto and we were in the office where we were enrolling her in this class. And uh, quite honestly, it didn't take me very long to get frustrated with that meeting. Uh, because I was hearing different things from two different people in the office about what Kate had to do to get enrolled. The steps that she'd have to take. And, uh, and I thought I was hearing two different things. Actually, I was not. I was. That's, that's on me. I was... <laughs> That's uh, that's my own shortcoming. But anyway, I was getting frustrated. And I felt there was this time crunch because it's Friday and the class starts Monday and everything had to get done for Kate to start this class and the people that we needed to see in order to clear up this confusion. He was meeting his office with other people. I've got this sermon to write. I'm getting mad and frustrated. And as I thought through all of that, I realized I'm getting upset 
because I don't feel like I'm in control. I feel like I'm out of control and things are out of control. What Genesis chapter 2 points out is we don't need control. We need rest. You know, there's invitation in the Bible to enter into God's rest. We can receive God's rest. Hebrews 4 says, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. There's this promise of rest and entering into God's rest. That does not mean we get to enter into God kicking his shoes off and reclining and relaxing. We get to enter into the world where God fully reigns on his throne. See, God was doing something amazing with that Genesis chapter 1 description of the six days. He was, he was creating this world with purpose. And those six days were building up to the seventh day, the day of completion, the day of his rest, meaning all the preparations were set, and now he could come and sit down on his throne and begin his reign. And he said, now I will dwell with my people. Now I will bring my kingdom and my reign into this world, and we can have rest by entering into that rest and know that God, is in control. And so we don't have to be. We can rest. Next week, we're going to talk about how we do that, how we participate in God's reign, his rule, and his rest. So come back for that. Let's pray right now. Almighty God, we thank you that you have created this world not so that we could live here all by ourselves, but so that we could be with you, so that you could dwell with us. You're not distant, God. You're with us through your Spirit right now. And you reign, and you're moving all things to your good and glorious end. And we pray for trust. We pray that we might see with eyes of faith. And when things seem out of control, Lord, help us to rest secure, trusting you. Lord, we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.